I show some illustrations for you up on the back. Um, if you're looking at that, that is a piece of steak, uh, some barbecued chicken, looks like something fried, and your token piece of broccoli. That is a picture of the Golden Corral. All right? And right, most people go to the Golden Corral and they pile on their plates all sorts of stuff and then they, they throw on a piece of broccoli because those two pieces of broccoli will cancel out everything else. No, you even see the commercial where the guy says, well, I, I, put, a, I put a piece of lettuce on here. That does make it a salad, right? And that's just how some people approach life is they just see this, this uh, flesh and they go after it with a gusto. But when I show this next illustration, some of you cringe. You, you see, some of you are extremely happy that I'm showing you this. Some of you, though, cringe. Those are called vegetables. And, and for some, it just brings back certain memories of the pain of dinner time. I just wanted to show, read to you the top 10 most nutritious or notorious, for some of you, vegetables. Broccoli, number one. Spinach, Brussels sprouts, lima beans, peas, asparagus. Love asparagus. Artichokes, cauliflower, sweet potatoes, and carrots. Those are your top 10 most nutritious vegetables. And over the next two weeks, today and next week, we're going to spend some time just looking at some lima bean soup, some, some cauliflower casserole. And the idea is that if I were to ask you, how many of you like vegetables, how many would raise your hands? A lot of you, because you've come to understand not only their nutritious value, but they can actually taste good. And when we talk about God's judgment, we're talking about the vegetables of theology. You can run from them all you want, but they're there, and it's good for us to understand it. And if we understand it in its proper context, it can be delightful. And so today, we looked last semester at the glory of God and salvation through judgment. When we looked at the flood, that was part one. This is part two, the glory of God and salvation through judgment, part two. We're going to see the kindness of God and the severity of God, as Romans 11:22 says. And so we're going to see the answer to Abraham's prayer. We're going to see a judgment upon a perverted culture. And we're going to see the discipline of a wayward believer all in one chapter. And so though, here's the main point. Though God may rescue us from righteous judgment upon the wicked, there are consequences for world, worldliness. And if you have your handout with you, we begin with God's destruction, the consequence of wickedness. And you should see there, and you can see it up top, on the screen, Second Peter 2.6 from the New American Standard, it says, If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, just want to show you where I'm getting the word, by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And so the things written in the Old Testament literally happened in history, and they were recorded as examples to us. And so we're going to read about the destruction of these two cities. And the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed his, himself with his face to the earth. 
And so we're given an introduction here. There are these two angels that had left God and Abraham earlier. They're on their way and they arrive at Sodom and they come in to the place of the city gate where the leadership goes on and there's our man Lot. He's sitting at the city gates and he bows himself because Lot is a believer, believe it or not. More on that in a minute. And he says, my Lord's, Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And so that's his invitation. He is very hospitable and he invites them into his own home. And they say, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he, Lot, pressed them, the angels, strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread as they ate. And so there's this introduction to the city and the man. There's this invitation from Lot to the angels. And there's this insistence of him that they come and stay at his house and not in the city square. Um, We used to live in a town where there was a city square, Denton Square. And that's where, the, that's where business took place. And so these men wanted to stay out there. They said, we'll just kind of like occupy Wall Street. We'll just park down right there. And he said, no, you don't want to do that. You want to come in. He insisted strongly. He didn't just say, are you sure? He pressed them and they responded. Why? Why would he press them? Well, look at verses 4 through 11. But before they lay down, the men of the city, And that's what it says in the Hebrew, the men of the city. The men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded his house. I'm reading this last week, sitting in my leather chair at 0291 Tanager Circle, and I'm just trying to picture every single man, young and old, from the city of Eagle surrounding my house. Just picture that. Picture your own house, Edwards, Avon, Eaglevale, Gypsum, the GYP, if that's where you live. Picture you're in your house, and all the men said twice, so we don't miss it, three times really, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, down to the last man, and they, the men, called to Lot. Here is their request. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. That we may know them. That these men wanted to do what was perverted with the two angels. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him. So he goes to stand in the gap. He is, though worldly, he is right in his hospitality and he's courageous. He goes and he stands in the gap. And he said, I beg you, Strange phrase, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. So these men wanted to know other men, and Sodom says, do not add wicked, act wickedly. Let me just preface this right now, that all sin is heinous in the sight of God. Amen? All sin is heinous, and the Lord sees homosexuality as wickedness. It's the words that the Holy Spirit, through Moses, chose to put down here. Men with men is called, or women with women, however it's called, homosexuality, and they call it wickedness. 
It's not just mentioned here. It's mentioned in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1. So let me preface this with all sin is heinous. And this explanation, you have to talk about it here. When we talk about homosexuality, the world will see it. Oh, he's just making his case. There he goes again. No, this is not my go-to illustration. It's in the Bible. And it becomes a sticking point with us, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because it's a denial of being sinful. That's the sticking point. All sin is heinous. But within that, we don't deny certain sins as sinful. No one's standing in the gap for Sandusky and saying, that's just his choice. No one's going to bat for Cain and his extramarital affairs and saying they're okay. Yet when it comes to this particular sin, we want to deny it as sinful. They're trying to make legitimate what is literally perverted. Scholars do it at universities. Senators do it in D.C. And the media does it across the country. So let me just this little side road on this particular issue. Let me make this clear. We don't, we, all of us in here, love those who are in that lifestyle. We love them. What we do not love is the fact that they try to make their lifestyle natural, biblical, and socially moral when it is odd, sinful, and destructive. It is not natural. I don't even have to go into the details. It is not natural. Be we creationists, which we are, or to our friends who would be evolutionists, it's not natural. Okay? It's not natural. If you have the latest copy of, or the second to latest copy of Christianity Today, you saw on there this year's Daniel was the gentleman that leads Exodus Ministries. And he talked about his own particular, he lived this lifestyle and he talked about that and he said that the Lord changed him and brought him out of that. And those who live that lifestyle don't like to hear that, that they can change. Because it's not, they want to say it is natural. It is not natural. Just do a little biology 101, human anatomy 101, it's not natural. And for those of my unbelieving evolutionist friends out there, if you're listening, your survival of the fittest theory doesn't last if we go down that road, okay? And it's not biblical. (laughs) It's here, it's called wicked, and I gave you five other verses. So it's not biblical, it's sinful, and it's destructive. So much so that there are two cities that no longer exist because of it. So last week we saw that they were prideful and arrogant. And this week we didn't capture in on pride or arrogance. God wanted to show us their sin. And so the reasons for the condemnation, it comes upon the wickedness, and here's the key, of unrepentant people. It's unrepentant people. We're all wicked. Our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know them? But we are a repentant people. We are saved sinners are being made into the image of Jesus Christ. And it's the answer to the cry of Abraham against the oppressed living in that city. That oppressed person was Lot. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. So we can't even try to wiggle out of this contextually. 
Let me bring them out, and you do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Wow. Good job on understanding hospitality, Lot, that you're really going to bat for these men. Bad job, Lot, on offering your daughters. As much as we have to get Lot out of Sodom, we have to get Sodom out of Lot's heart. Because though he was sincere, he was sincerely wrong. You don't go and answer one evil with another. What do the men say to that proposal, perverted as it was? But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow, this fellow has come to sojourn and he has become a judge. This one who came seeking prosperity and material wealth, this one who has come and is now a leader among us, now he stands as the judge over us. That is exactly how the world sees it when we call them to account. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. Again, sitting in my chair, imagining, stepping outside the door, not making that proposal, right? But stepping out and defending someone inside my house and them starting to press in so much so that you had to have a natural act. But the men reached out, those are the two angels, and brought Lot into the house and shut the door. They opened the door, grabbed him, pulled him in, and then they did their supernatural angel act and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they themselves they were themselves out groping for the door. Wow. Can you picture that scene? Again, be in your house. You are then pulled back in, and all the men of the city are blind because two angels went to bat for you. Then the men said to Lot, so we, we've gotten Lot out of the immediate, out of immediate harm's way, and then they ask you, have you anyone else here? Question, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. I don't want you to miss that. God's judgment was a done deal. It was a done deal. Come back with me to chapter 18, verse 16. After they three men had had a meal with Abraham and Sarah, the men set out from there and looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? It was a done deal. It was going to happen. Look at 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. God had sent them on a mission. It's a done deal. In between that, we saw last week, Abraham goes like a lawyer and he pleads for the righteous. It was a done deal. God's judgment is coming. Abraham's prayer is made in light of that judgment. And so, Lot now sees in real life what we see God had decided and what Abraham prayed for. Now Lot sees it and says to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, another strange idea, 
Who were these sons-in-law? What cities were they from? Were they followers of Jesus? Probably not. Look at the answer. Up, sons-in-law, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. (laughs) But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be joking. Lot spoke the good news. See this? See this vegetable of judgment. It's the good news. Get out. God's coming. And you can be saved. And his sons-in-law looked at him and they're like, oh, come on. Two things here. That, that's often how the world will, will react when we proclaim the good news. And that is okay if that's the way the world reacts. But taking a look at Lot's life, let's not live in such a way that when others see our lives, they perceive us as joking when we talk about the gospel. You're kidding. Who are you? You've come to sojourn, and now you're the judge, and and you're calling us to, to get out? And then there's this urging from the angels. It's, this is, Lot is a case study. This, this guy's a believer. This is a case study. It happened, and we study this. As Sheldon read, we look back on this example. He knew judgment was coming, and he had to be urged. You're going to see it in 15, 17, and in 22. Urging him to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Just like he called his sons-in-law. Get out, Lot. You get out and take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Look at 16. Just the first three words. But he lingered. But he lingered. So the men seized him. To seize is to take hold of by force, by definition. They seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. Catch this. Vegetables right here. The Lord being merciful. God's glory in in judgment, in salvation through judgment. Judgment must come upon the wicked, but the Lord is merciful and will get his own out of the city to live another day. But he lingered. And so they brought him, the Lord being merciful to him. Catch that, circle it, to him, Lot. They brought him out and set him outside the city. And they urged him again in 17. And they brought him out and said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Okay. (laughs) He's lingering. Now he's arguing with angels who've been sent to destroy the city. I'm a city boy. I can't go to the hills. It shouldn't matter. They, they could have. You, 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 they could have said, "Lot, it doesn't. I don't care what, who you are. I've been sent to save you and destroy the city. Go where I tell you. Why are we sitting here having this conversation?" But they did. Good angels, gracious angels, and they said, "Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills." 
lest disaster overtake me and I die. Do we not think when the Lord gets us out of judgment, he knows exactly where we need to go? Do we not think the Lord who would save us from our sin and from eternity apart from him knows exactly where we need to go? I can be just like Lot, right? The Lord who can save me and know exact to take me from the the depths of in the in the the pit and set my feet up on the rock. Why do I need to continue to argue with? Well, I, I just don't know about the hills, Lord. I've evaluated everything that you've done, and I've come to the conclusion this is not a good place for me. Look at what he does. These, these angels, and in, in, i.e. God's messengers. Behold, this city is near enough to flee. And it's a little one. Zoar, that's what it means, little. It's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not, it's not a little one? My life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also. I will not overthrow the city which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city is called Little Zoar. I don't want a whole lot of Sodom. I just want a little Zoar. I could go do a whole bunch of preaching with that right now, but I won't. Let me just set the scene here for this next couple lines, Luke 17, 27 or 28 through 32, um, Jesus refers back to this story when he's talking about God's judgment, starting it, well, they will be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. So he's referring back to God's glory and salvation through judgment part one, the flood. Likewise, so just like Noah and the ark and the flood, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. That is Bible study methods. That same stuff happens today. That goes straight across. Eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting and building, But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven. Even using the same language as Noah in the flood, rained 40 days and 40 nights. Here we're raining fire and sulfur from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be when the Son of Man is revealed. So we've got a judgment here upon the world because it was wicked. We've got another judgment here on Sodom and Gomorrah because they were wicked. And Jesus says, it's going to happen again. And the Son of God comes. And on that day, let the one who is in the housetop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away. Don't be packing a U-Haul. Go. Likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. And look how what he quotes here in 32. Remember Lot's wife. And so let's just read these verses in the context of Jesus' commentary. Then the sun had risen, Genesis 19.23, and then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities. Let's read 25 very carefully. He overthrew those cities and all in the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. 
But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. The sulfur and the fire that came down consumed her. And so when we see the reasons for condemnation, it is because God will judge the wickedness of unrepentant people, and he will do it in the answer of the cries of the oppressed, the action of God's condemnation, it is after the wicked, or excuse me, whoa, after the righteous have been removed, we have to get the righteous out, then wicked will become upon the city. It will be unexpected by some. They were eating and drinking and planning and building and just carrying on like it were just another day. It will be spectacular to all. You will not miss it. You will go, did did God just judge now or was I missing something? And it will be total and complete. All the city, in the valley, all the inhabitants, and your little plants. Gone. That's God's judgment. But it comes in a context. Not to miss that the Lord was merciful to him. Why was the Lord merciful to Lot? Look at 27 and 28. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. This is our man. This is our defense attorney. And he goes back to where he does business with God. And he looked down from so- towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. If you're standing New York Mountain and you're looking down, you can see Fulford for sure, you can kind of see Eagle, and if you look that way, you can see Edwards, and I'm told if you're at the top of Cordillera, you can see other parts of western Colorado, is that right? Maybe, I don't know, Aspen maybe, but you're looking down, say you were looking down from my house one day when your daughter goes to spend some time with Laura Mansfield and their daughters, and then you see smoke rising up from the canyon, I think that's kind of what Abraham was like. What's going on down there? My daughter's down there. Lord, we pray that Laura's not in that area where there is smoke. She wasn't. Praise the Lord for her and all those girls. But that's what it looked like. You see smoke and you're like, what? What is that? And in 29, he tells us. So here's the connection. Abraham's looking. He's there to meet with the Lord. He looks down the terrain and he sees smoke coming up and it says so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley (laughs) this is beautiful God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived now let's think back what if there's 50 in the city I won't destroy it because of 50 45 not because of 45 40 not 40 30, not 30. 20, not 20. If I could just speak one more time, I am but dust and ashes. Abraham goes boldly. Abraham goes reverently. And Abraham goes humbly. What about 10? No. I won't destroy it. Yet we just saw the city destroyed. Because we had to get Lot out. And so God answered the heart of the prayer, if not the words, right? That's what Abraham wanted. He didn't articulate it. 
But God answers his prayer and he upholds his character and who he is to judge evil and wickedness. So that's God's destruction. There are consequences to wickedness. God's deliverance in 29, there is, there is a consequence of righteousness. Look at 2 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8. So we said in 6, 2 Peter 2, 6, we said this, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes as he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard the righteous man, just twice, while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Three times. How do we know Lot's a believer? Because three times Peter gives us the commentary on this passage. Righteous Lot, a righteous man, is righteous soul. He is righteous. Not by anything that he did on his own, we can tell. Because very similarly, if not exactly, though we're not given a verse, we're going with biblical principles here, Abraham believed in God and God credited it to him as righteousness. Righteousness. Somehow, between Abraham believing, probably preached the gospel to Lot, Lot believed. No verse says, and Lot believed in the Lord and God credited to him as righteous. But this is our commentary, Lot's a believer. So God's got to get his righteous people out of judgment. And when you linger and argue and... If that's not a case for irresistible grace, that you cannot resist God's grace, when he wants to get you out of judgment, you can hesitate, you can argue, but he will take you, he will seize you, and he will move you out of harm's way. Say that again, just right into the mic. That's good. Praise the Lord. That's a big praise to the Lord. That is a doctrine of grace. That's huge. That gives me comfort that God will always do right. Even in the lives that we're looking around at some and we're going, do they know the Lord? This is righteous lot, a righteous man with a righteous soul, yet we never see him talking to God. He talks to the angels, but he thought they were men. He never talks to God. He doesn't reflect on God's word. He has absolutely no fellowship and absolutely no accountability. So what? So God's going to discipline him. He loves him. The Lord chastens those he loves. And so there's a consequence to worldliness, and I'm going to give you some reasons for discipline. You see 1 John 2, 15 through 17, and James 4, 4. 1 John says, Don't love the world or the things of the world, or if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father but of this world. You adulteresses, why don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And so let me just do here in two minutes a reflection on the life of Lot as an example, as Sheldon read, of what not to do. This is called The Miserable Life of a Worldly Believer. It's a sermon within a sermon, but go with it. Number one, he's saved. 
2 Peter 2, 6-8, he's saved. Righteous Lot is a righteous man who had his soul tormented. Yet he's shallow. Again, we've never seen him do anything personally to develop his relationship with God. He's selfish. Look around. Lot, take what you, Well, Abraham saw, or excuse me, Lot saw with his eyes that Sodom and Gomorrah is good, and he says, I'll take that. I'll go after the world. And he's stubborn. In 14, Abraham went and rescued him and had to bring him out. And he, and he went back to Sodom and Gomorrah. You've already been there once, and it's been taken over once, and you go back there. And here's the oddest thing about the early life of Lot. He's successful. He goes from looking at the city to living in the city to leading the city. He's at the city gate. He's a leader. He's a leader of the city. Yet Lot is saved. He does have, in, if we were to make it a New Testament comparison, he does have the Holy Spirit within him because when the angels show up, he is hospitable. And he is aware that there is wrong going on around him and he doesn't want them to experience it. However, Lot has got so much Sodom in his heart, he doesn't even know how to react to the situation. In verse 7 of chapter 19, he says, my brothers, those aren't his brothers. He's trying to fit in. And then he's perverted in his thinking, take my daughters. No. He's rejected by them. You who want to sojourn here, you are not our judge. He is mocked. His sons-in-law go, the gospel you preach to me is a joke, right? That's like saying, that's like me coming to you today and going, you know what? They found a cure for cancer. I read it yesterday in the National Enquirer. It's funny. You're not supposed to, that's, that's a joke. They didn't because the National Enquirer is a joke. He's hesitant when he hears judgments coming. He's compromising. He's scared. Look at this in verses 30 through 38. Now Lot went up to Zoar and lived in the hills with his daughter, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. He goes from having a house and leading in a city to hiding in a cave. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old and there's not a man on earth to come into us. After the manner of all the earth, come, let us make our father drink wine, and we'll lie with him, and he, that we may preserve offspring from our father. He, he's Second Peter said he's living in an oppressed community. He's got a tormented soul. We can see he's lost his witness, and now his legacy is tarnished. He doesn't even raise his daughters up in the ways of the Lord, so they're reacting to what they've seen. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she had lay down and when she arose. He blacked out. Blacked out. Didn't know it. Couldn't remember it. And unfortunately, there's some of us in this room who have been there and see that verse, and we go, oh. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie down that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. That's not good. And here's the results. This tarnished legacy that, that he did not lead them in the right way, and so the 
the older sibling is telling the younger sibling there's this perverted discipleship going on. And that's what goes on in our culture every single day. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, which means from my father. He is the father of the Moabites today. The younger bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami, the son of my people, and he is the father of the Ammonites to this day. And so the people who were reading this, the Israelites getting ready to go in and take the land, are saying, these are our worst enemies, and they came from our family because we, like the book of Judges said, there arose a generation that did not know the Lord, therefore they did evil in the sight of the Lord, each doing what was right in his own eyes. And so Lot, the, conse- the reasons for discipline come because we're, we're, we're not walking with the Lord. We're not in fellowship and accountability. We don't understand the dangers of living in Sodom and Gomorrah. So much so we'll say, take me to Zoar. I just want a little sin. And the results of that is our communities oppressed so much so we can't get away from that, but our souls are tormented. When we get close to the world, our souls are tormented day after day. If I go a few days and say, you know what? I'm just not going to read the word to these next couple of days. I'm just going to go to CNN, little Fox News, little ESPN, just get, get fed. My soul is tormented. His witness is diminished. He lives a miserable life. He died with nothing. No house, no home, no life, no wife. We can say that he died not leaving a good legacy to his family. And and that's the worst of it. It was passed on from a generation. So what do we learn about the Lord here? Number one, we learn that God will judge wickedness. And he's justified in his judgment. I'm not apologizing for it. And that God answers the hearts of the prayers, the hearts of our prayers, if not the words. Abraham wanted to get his nephew Lot out of Sodom. And he did. And God will rescue his own from his destruction, that he is glorified in his grace, that when judgment comes, it's because the cry of the oppressed goes out, he gets them out of judgment, and he judges rightly, completely, never as an overreaction, but he will judge wickedness. Yet, if you're following along in the handout, he will not always remove the consequences of our actions. He very well may. You can live a perverted lifestyle, and he, you may not suffer the consequences of that, praise the Lord, but he may very well allow those consequences to play out. I can just say very generally, in light of the audience, uh, the Lord has spared me from some of the consequences that I could have lived out. Being a one who reveled in drunkenness and all that goes with it. I'm going to leave it at that. So how do these truths work out in our lives? <laughs> Number one, we would do well to fear God and for others. To fear God and to fear Him for others. Both unbelievers and backsliders. Jude 17 through 23. It says, Save some by snatching them out of the fire, keeping yourself unstained by their worldly garment. We would do well to pray for 
their repentance. Paul's desire is that he would go and be accursed, that his brothers would come to know Jesus because they were going down the wrong road. And we would do well to rejoice in the fact that we have been rescued from judgment. Amen? Galatians 1, I'll read this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who rescued us, rescued, delivered, brought us out of this present evil age. Amen? According to the will of God our Father to whom be the glory forever. Thirdly, that now that we've been saved, we would do well not to flirt with but to flee from immorality, idolatry, the love of money, and youthful revelry. Flee from it. Every single one of those verses talk about fleeing from it. Not flirting with, not playing around. Just dabble in it a little bit. No, flee like Joseph fled. And finally, we would do well to understand that worldliness can ruin our witness where right living can confirm it. And those last two verses, Titus 2.8, that should be 1 Peter 2.12, not 1 Timothy, where it says, Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify the God on the day of visitation. He's coming back. On the day of visitation. He's coming back. So until then, we recognize where we've come from, we recognize where we're going to, and we live accordingly, proclaiming the good news, because life is not a joke. Let us not be lots who linger and argue with the God who saves us. Let us eat our vegetables and come to understand they're good for us and that God's judgment is surrounded by his mercy. Father, Thank you for getting me personally out of harm's way, out of eternal, of an eternal destiny apart from you. And I thank you that you've done that for many sitting here today. It's a joy to know that one day we will see you face to face, not as our condemning judge, but our heavenly Father. We thank you for the mercy that you showed to Lot, you showed to us, and that there's no temptation that's overtaken us that such as is common to man. But with it, you offer the way of escape that we may be able to endure it. I pray that we would cling to you, we would cling to the cross, we would connect with others in community and not live isolated lives like our brother Lot. We pray for your grace. And Lord, we cannot, just like Abraham understood that he could not live life apart from you, we understand that as well. And so we beg you, like Abraham begged, like Jesus say, to be a beggar of our spirit for your grace, for you to pour out your power through the Holy Spirit that we might live like you call us to live. Enable us to do what you command so that we might glorify you in all we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.